Welcome once again to the Milt Rosenberg Podcast. And yes, this eternal voice is that of Milt Rosenberg. And with me once again is someone you've heard before on our podcast series, namely Charles Lipson, Professor of Political Science, University of Chicago. But that hardly, Charles, does full justice to your rich career uh, and your many books. Uh, The one that is uh, most recent and which we've talked about before is titled Reliable Partners. And it's concerned with the uh, fact that, and apparently it is an established fact, that democracies don't actually ever go to war against one another. There's an old academic joke, Milt, that says uh, we know that it works in practice. Now we have to see if it works in theory. And uh-huh. that's, the, that's what actually happened with the democratic peace. Uh, when people found it, found out that that was true, they didn't think it was right, and so they ran control variables. Maybe it's just that they were rich, or maybe that yeah. they were further apart or something. When it was all said and done, it turns out that it really is that being democratic uh, is something that uh, contributes to peace. And I tried to explain why that was so. Well, we are democratic, and we are also Republican. I shift from the one use of the term democratic and drew the other. The master of segues. And I shift to the question of American politics. Recently, you favored us with uh, a full hour on the confusing, the disordered, uh, the frustrating uh, um, uh, diplomatic, or I really should say foreign policy scene during a year when things looked pretty damn strange. Do they look less strange? Does one get greater consolation from scanning merely the political horizon domestically in the United States these days? And I should make clear, because this will be heard a few weeks after we actually uh, engage in this discussion, I should make clear that we are in the middle of the month of January. But assume that we're being heard in early February. What do you think we'll be talking about? Well, in early February, mostly my birthday uh, was very important uh, in early February. Actually, you remember what Harold Wilson said, uh, that a week was an eternity in in politics. So uh, with that in mind, I think what I would say is that rather than go through specific issues, tax reform, immigration, uh, the split in the Congress and so forth, I would say that there are two very big concerns now. One is... Uh, By the way, I've got a third to add to Oh, go ahead. Tell me the first two. The the first one is the creeping but uh, steadily increasing sense that many Americans have that the government is centralized in Washington and is not responsive to their concerns and that there are two parties that have strong wings that are the pro-Washington, pro-Wall Street wings and Mm -hmm. that don't represent them. And I think you saw the visible tip of that iceberg uh, in the Tea Party on the Republican side and the much smaller uh, Occupy Wall Street on the the left. That's the first issue. What's the second? I think that uh, the second issue is whether or not uh, America uh, can resume its growth, economic growth in a sustainable way. And I guess I would say maybe the third issue is, has the great, which is related to the first two, has the great arc of progressivism, 
which really took root under it started, you could say, under Teddy Roosevelt and, and Woodrow Wilson, but it really took root under FDR, LBJ, continued through Nixon, and is now reached its apogee, or if you will, nadir, under Barack Obama. Has that project run its course? And if so, given that it is the essential project of the Democratic Party, what do they want to do now? And the way I would summarize it is this. How well, when we look back on the war on poverty that began in the mid-60s, can we truly say that the most impoverished, the worst off among us, have really come out a lot better after some say 16 trillion, some say more, has been spent on that program. I think that is emblematic of a very large kind of problem. Well, and the answer, you say, how well have um, the disadvantage done after the war on poverty, essentially? And the war on education and the war on drugs and every All other big progressivist program. movements, yeah. yes. And the answer, of course, as you know, is they've not done well. Progressivism, in that sense, has failed. In fact, the most abject, the most long-suffering, and in many ways the most uncontainable sector of the American population is uh, the black underclass in the what we used to call the ghetto. I thought that you we, were going to say it's the bureaucracy in Washington. Well, no, it's the black underclass. <laughs> it's uncontainable. That, that we in what we used to be called the ghetto and is now called the, the inner, inner city, city. Yeah. Uh, and in which unemployment rates for males. Uh, young males, especially, run to close to 50%, in which violence is the language of the streets, uh, and in which um, there's no family formation. The basic family is a hard-pressed single woman and s six or seven or eight children from four or five different fathers. Uh, and all of that sustained by a welfare system, which supposedly we were remedying and altering uh, that under uh, Clinton. And the children not being trained. And never being properly educated. Properly educated yeah. for the jobs that are going to be available also, in the year 2025 yeah. or whatever. And as George Bush, George W. Bush, and so many others have said, the real defense for virtually uncontrolled immigration, particularly from the Hispanic world to our south, particularly from Mexico, is, quote, these folks are willing to do the work that Americans aren't. We've located a great failure of modern American life, politics, economy, what have you. And I think that, um, that, that uh, the Republican answer uh, the Democratic answer is, uh, I'm sorry, we just need more money for that. And I think that the Republican answer is we need to cut taxes and uh, assume that private agencies will step in. Uh, the Democratic answer is obviously wrong. The, the Republican answer e e uh, could be partly right, but it's surely not the whole of it. And I think that— Well, but make, but make, make clear, yeah. though, the Republican answer is, yes, cut taxes, but that will encourage the— uh, the startup of new businesses that will encourage other businesses to expand, that will increase employment, that will, in fact, raise uh, revenue 
federal revenue to a higher level than when you had higher taxes. Well, it could. That that was the hope. That was the Laffer curve and so forth. To be sure. Uh, I, I think that, that, was Reg- that was Reaganism. And I think that what, and uh, accompanying that, I think that uh, there should be a, a substantial reduction of the regulatory state. We're, we have uh, economic growth when it's really running well. On average, between sort of two and a half and two point seven five percent, something like that, and it may be that as much as one percent of that, that it's one percent lower year by year, and therefore after twenty five years or something, uh, something on the order of fifty percent lower than it could be, because of regulatory excesses. And what do I mean by but but again, I'm saying all of this is important, but it's not enough. If um, if we, um, what's happened has been a vicious circle in many of these areas where the family has collapsed. And by the way, this is not just uh, an African American phenomenon. Uh, Charles Murray's new uh, important, important new work. Have you interviewed him? Oh, of course, on, many times. Uh, yes. And have you talked with him about this book, Falling Apart? Yes, indeed. We, we, we discussed and it. The, the key argument there, he looked only at whites so that the racial dimension would not be taken into account. And basically what he says is that people like the Rosenberg family or the Lipson family live in many ways like uh, uh, like they did in the Ozzie and Harriet era, that we uh, that we have stable families, uh, a couple of kids, maybe we have a little fewer than we used to. Uh, we educate them well. Uh, we uh, teach them good habits uh, of the sort of Protestant ethic uh, variety that Weber described and, uh, and so forth. What's happening among the lower uh, uh, the lower class whites, what are uh, often uh, derogatively referred to as trailer trash or whatever you want to call it, uh, the uh, is a complete collapse of the family. Uh, as much as forty percent now out of wedlock births. Of course, the numbers in Chicago in African American households are eighty percent. But but the trend among whites has been up. These are people, despite President Obama's off the uh, off uh, the record comments in his first campaign, that these people cling to God and guns. They may cling to guns, but they're not clinging to God. They don't go to church. There uh, there's just a complete breakdown, and I don't see how the country can really thrive in the future if um, if we don't resolve some of those problems. And I, I don't think that those problems are resolvable purely by government. I really don't. No. Uh, this is... You've said that wonderfully well so far. It just occurs to me I've not yet said to our listeners what the topic of tonight's uh, and of uh, this particular podcast is. But it is obvious that it is the American dilemma, not in Gunnar Myrdal's sense, though uh, that sense is part of the continuing American dilemma. Uh, but um, uh, ultimately, what our topic necessarily is, is American politics, since we assume that uh, the business of politics is to preserve the polity, to improve its performance, to defend it, and to help it 
uh, to flourish. And so we are now in a season where already they're beginning to talk about presidential potential candidacies. And that's what immediately stimulates uh, the inquiry that we are launched upon right now. You've given a wonderful background picture of what our present American dilemma is. Recently, we had another discussion in which she talked about the American dilemma as we face the world. But now we're looking at the American dilemma as we face our inner problems, all 300 and what are we now? 320, 330 million people in a great nation. Um, And let's begin to level in to talk about whether American politics, as presently practiced, begins to touch in any way upon the issue and the great need that you've just outlined. Let us look at, for that matter, the potential candidacies in on the Republican side. It is commonly assumed that on the Democratic side, the nomination belongs to Mrs. Clinton if she chooses to take it. And despite some fuss about the lady from Massachusetts, it's expected that Mrs. Clinton will have that nomination. So it's the Republicans that are vying with one another. What do they offer? Who are they? What's going on? Well, to begin with the largest part of your question, Milt, one thing we know from all the surveys, and we feel it in our in our bones, is that there has been a deep erosion of trust in American institutions. That's true about virtually all institutions. It's true about uh, how the public feels about universities. It's true about how they feel about the media, excepting, of course, the Milt Rosenberg podcast. It's true uh, about every institution except the U.S. military. Virtually every institution in America, broadly conceived, has lost uh, credibility. Um, and I would say for good reason. They haven't been delivering. But um, what a... The, let, me, let me start with the Democrats. The Democrats have a very thin bench. If Hillary wants it, it's hers only because there's really not much to contest it. The left would like to see Elizabeth Warren, but Elizabeth Warren would be a George McGovern or a Barry Goldwater candidate, uh, a candidate that represents the kind of heart and soul of, a, of the party, but really can't win. I would say on the Republican side, there are candidates like Ted Cruz uh, uh, on one side and uh, maybe uh, Huckabee, Mike Huckabee, governor, former governor of Arkansas, who represent those kind of heart and soul of different parts of a Republican uh, constituency, but could not win a national election unless the other party put up somebody who was equally marginal. That's not to say that, I mean, you could think that Elizabeth Warren would be great or Mike Huckabee would be great or Ted Cruz would be great, but they're not going to get more than 44% of the vote. And um, uh, the problem that the Democrats have, uh, which I think besets a lot of uh, incumbent parties, is that the president sucks all the oxygen out of the party In this case, he has a vice president who seems like he wears uh, clown shoes and a a big red nose. And uh, you have, you know, marginal figures like Martin O'Malley, who couldn't even see his successor in a deep blue state be a Democrat. The Republicans won. He didn't he, he doesn't have much going for him, to tell you the truth. And there's not a very deep bench there. Um. 
Hillary has a lot of problems. Um, besides what Obama said about her, that she doesn't have the new car smell, which I think is actually a great phrase, right? I mean, there is a, a and, and Obama ought to know, right? He benefited from having that sense of novelty, which allowed people to treat him and his candidacy like a Rorschach inkblot. Uh, that, of course, suggests that he now has an old car smell. Well, yeah, more like a used car. Used car. Uh, cash for clunkers, if you remember that, another <laughs> failed program. Um, the... Uh, kind of like Gerald Ford's uh, win buttons, whip inflation now, as if that was actually going to help. Um, the, um, the problem that Hillary has uh, um, is that she has a great resume with very few accomplishments. There are very few things, besides the problem of a third uh, democratic election in a row, which is always hard. In the, uh, the only time this happened was Reagan's two terms was succeeded by George H.W. Uh, Bush. The only time that's happened where there's been three in a three elections in a row for the same party after World War II. But uh, 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 she will have a hard time differentiating herself. Uh, as Hubert Humphrey did uh, from Lyndon Johnson, differentiating herself from her predecessor without alienating all of his supporters. But she doesn't have a lot to run on. The foreign policy record of the Obama administration was pretty miserable. And she didn't really do anything as senator for New York. It is more miserable in the Obama second term than it was in the Obama first term. But but it's really hard for her to say, gee, things were really great. How'd that reset with Russia work out? That was her most prominent policy. Mm-hmm. How'd the things with Iran work out? That was another prominent policy. So, you know, how'd things with with uh, uh, Libya work out? So I, I don't see, and she didn't do anything as senator. She's the, She reminds me in certain ways of Luralene Wallace and Ma Ferguson was she? The, these are the wives of politicians in the old South who used to run after their husband had reached the term limit, and Luralene ran because George Wallace couldn't succeed himself, and Ma Ferguson, you know that sort of thing. I, I you know, it's not treating it's not belittling her as a woman it's pointing out that far from being this feminist icon she has relatively few accomplishments whereas elizabeth warren you can say she was a faux indian she's very much on the left she has a lot of problems these are her accomplishments though she has something else which she shares Mm -hmm. with the current president of the united states she or was she for that matter a graduate of the Harvard Law School. She certainly was teaching there when she ran for the Senate. I don't know. Her main accomplishment is that she really pushed through uh, the Consumer Finance Act, yeah. the Dodd-Frank. And so uh, unless there's an expl- a meltdown on Wall Street uh, before the next election, and she's then people look to her as they looked to Barney Frank before and said, hey, you were responsible for this. She has accomplishments, but she can't win an election. She Surely can't win a national election. somebody other than those two women mm-hmm. uh, in the Democratic uh, Front uh, Assembly who are potentially 
plausible as candidates for the presidency and who have aspirations right now, which they're secretly harboring and wishing or maybe even trying to arrange that Hillary chooses not to run. Well, it's pretty it's pretty much time to spring the surprise on everybody because you've got to get rolling. But Hillary has frozen everything. And as long as she can prevent others from getting into the race by simply not declaring. Uh, but the common whisper, the yeah. common whisper on the part of lots of Democrats is uh, Hillary faces a great problem, which she knows about, but the country is not yet anticipating it. But the country will certainly be aroused and will respond once the additional scandals about Hillary's husband are revealed, even down to virtually the present moment. Well, S- sexual scandals, mind you. Well, I and like reading the National Enquirer as much as the next University of Chicago professor. Uh-huh. But uh, the fact is, I don't think... You don't think it's that important? I, I, I don't unless she f- ends up being culpable in some kind of a cover-up. Uh, that is, I, I think... The irony, she will come out and say, how can I possibly be held responsible for the actions of another person? And yet, her prominence as a national political figure is precisely because of the other person's accomplishments. But I, I still think I wouldn't hold her responsible because this guy's a horn dog. But you know that there are <clears throat> those who are predicting that finally her decision will be not to run and will be on those grounds as much as any other. Then I think it'll be the seven dwarfs who enter the primaries in, you know, let the best man or woman win. But I think that um, and and look, it's not a worthless nomination to have. The Republicans have done very well in the post-Cold War era. And if the economic recovery continues, you know, they've got a shot. But look, Al Gore could not win after Bill Clinton's two very successful terms and a strong economy. And, uh, I mean, he came close. He won the popular vote, and he, he came close to winning. But, I mean, it just tells you what an up And he was a terrible candidate. But he was a very experienced guy, a lot of served a lot in Congress and so forth. And, you know, uh, but to know him was to dislike him. If he'd won his home district in Tennessee, the people who had elected him first to Congress, he would have been president of the United States. He couldn't uh-huh. win that. To know him was to dislike him. I do not necessarily immediately comprehend Mm -hmm. why you, as do so many journalists, dismiss the, quote, Tea Party faction of the Republican Party as um, not capable of producing a winning president, as not capable of offering a program to which the majority of the American electorate may ultimately respond uh, favorably, particularly as we go on in economic distress and in familial distress. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the Tea Party platform, whatever it is, um, anything other than uh, serious conservative republicanism, rather on the Reaganish variety. I think there's a lot to what you're saying. Uh, what I wrote this week in what was effectively a blog post was uh, I tend to do it on Facebook rather than writing a blog. And the reason I like Facebook is actually that I have friends on both the left and right, so I get a brisk 
Uh, well, also, increasingly, you're op-edding it all over the place. Well, that's right. I, I write a monthly column for the Chicago Tribune, and I had a recent column in the Wall Street Journal and so forth. Uh, uh, I've, I've decided, Milt, I'm not going to hide my views under a bushel basket anymore. You that's know? because I've been urging you for years not to yeah, do well, so. Well, thank you. You've helped me overcome my shyness. Uh, the It was hard. Yeah. I Here's what I wrote uh, recently, that if you had— to summarize the question that Republicans need to ask themselves, uh, it's this in one sentence. Who among your candidates can win Ohio and Florida? Think about it just like that. Who can win Ohio and Florida? Let me put it the opposite way. You know how they did those geometry proofs? Let us assume the opposite. Let us assume you lose both Ohio and Florida, critical swing states that are pretty close every time. I don't see a pathway. I mean, there is technically a pathway, as there there used to be. They would say in August, the Cubs are still in the pennant race, technically, if they won every other game and the other team lost every other game. Yeah, they're technical pathways. But if you lose Ohio and Florida, how are you going to win Virginia and Colorado in these other swing states? So just think about that. So what I would say is will happen here is that there will be sort of three groupings to look at in the Republican horse race. One would be Romney v. Uh, Jeb Bush. That will be uh, – Jeb Bush has been in some ways wrongly painted as a purely establishmentarian candidate. Uh a lot of the thing, and that's because he's been moderate on immigration and he favors common core education standards. He was actually excellent on education in Florida. But remember, it's been a while. The first iPhone had not been introduced when he last ran for office. So he's been a while out of the public eye, but he will inherit a lot of fundraising, a lot of uh He's got a lot going for him, and yet, even though he's been out of the public eye, he doesn't have the new car smell, right? Uh, people, He will have to differentiate himself in a lot of ways from George W. Bush. I don't think George W. Bush could win a third term if he were allowed to run. I mean, he might be able to against Elizabeth Warren. But, uh, but so they, that's going to be a race. I think Jeb will, uh, will win that because I think Romney would, would have been a reasonably good president, but he was a flawed, deeply flawed does candidate. The, does the presidency really matter? Uh, we used to say in some ways, no, it doesn't. The president is bound by the Constitution and is very much a creature or should be a creature of his party. The last one who led the party rather than succumb to the party was probably FDR. However, more recently, we've seen a president, the currently reigning president, who has gathered to himself executive powers, which may be extra constitutional or unconstitutional. And we find the Congress, including the Republican majority in uh, the House and now a Republican majority in both House and Senate, who uh, aren't making much fuss about his grabbing powers that we didn't know belonged to the presidency. Is it possible that maybe we're looking in the wrong direction with regard to the question of uh, uh, the American future? Maybe our system as such 
is really not functional and not operative. Maybe as a friend of mine who is a political scientist at George Mason University has really done in a book that he's written, maybe the parliamentary system gives us actually a more responsive politics than does the Constitution, which presidents increasingly seem prone to violate anyway. I'm happy to answer that. And then at some point I want to come back because the the Bush v. Uh, Romney was not my full list of what was going on among the the Republicans. I'll come back to that. Let me answer your please. Let me answer your question here. Uh, the first is beware of us political scientists. For years, what we wanted was an American party system like the European system that was ideolog- where the parties were ideologically distinct from each other. The, the Democrats used to have a lot of conservatives in them. The Republicans used to have a lot of liberals. The result of that was that you got a lot of compromises in Congress and all the rest. Now we have parties that are much more sharply divided. The easiest way to to look at that is to ask yourself how many of the most conservative Democrats are still uh, more are the conservative most conservative Democrats still more liberal than the most liberal Republicans by their voting record in Congress? And the answer is yes, with the possible exception of somebody like Joe Manchin is not all that different from uh, from the senators from Maine and that sort of thing. But it's it, it's pretty it's they're pretty ideologically separate. We're not going to change our form. It's just uh, it's whistling in the dark. We're not going to be a parliamentary system. But uh, I think that the presidency matters for two reasons. One is you could either continue to do what Obama is doing and Bush did before him, which is to accumulate more and more po- power in the office of the presidency and what Cheney and others used to speak of is the unified executive. By the way, I think the Tea Party was as much an uprising against that as against uh, Obama's overreaching. They do not want a Republican Party that looks like that. And uh, the other is precisely what I was saying about the Tea Party. I think that everybody has governed... Uh, including if you look at Eisenhower, you look at Nixon, you look, all of these presidents have governed within this broad arc defined by the politics of FDR through LBJ, right? Nobody, the only exception was Reagan. And the Democrats' success there was that while Reagan changed taxes, he didn't fundamentally change the direction of an ever-aggrandizing government, right? So what you have is Republicans now who want to accomplish, I think, two, maybe three things. They want to win the presidency. They want to reverse this ever enlarging Washington establishment, uh, which is not just the presidency, but all these bureaucratic regulations and all the rest. And they want to reverse the decline of America, both as an economy and as a capacity to project leadership in the world. I think that what's been missing so far, and I look forward to people fleshing this out, is that when uh, Jeb Bush came in in Florida, he actually dramatically cut government. 
It's also true of Scott Walker. And that brings me back to the other Republicans in the running. I think that besides the the Jeb Bush uh, Romney, there will be one Midwestern governor, either Kasich or Scott Walker, Kasich of Ohio, uh, or Scott Walker. And then there will probably be one either from the Tea Party wing or from the social conservative wing, the, uh, a Huckabee, uh, uh, a libertarian like Rand Paul or something like that. Each of those have their sort of base. But when it all gets said and done, I suspect that the final runoff will be between one of these Midwestern governors and a probably Jeb Bush with the edge to Bush. That would be my guess. What, what do you think? Uh, I don't think so much as react yeah. emotionally with a light but persistent and pervasive sense of depression. I don't particularly want to see a Bush hierarchy perpetuated. Three presidents from one family. Two was enough. Uh I don't find any of the people that you, we've mentioned, except, frankly, possibly, some of the uh, truly conservative Republicans, mm-hmm. if they are, uh, at all promising. I wish that there were a way to re- recapitulate or restore Ronald Reagan or, or a Reaganish kind of presence uh, back into the presidency. Mr. We meet, need a man like Herbert Hoover again. You know, I mean, the fact is he's dead and in the grave. And yes, he is. Uh, there's no way that the Democrats can resurrect FDR. And there's no way that the Republicans can resurrect uh, Reagan, except as a kind of uh, North Star for their policies. Actually, Scott Walker has accomplished a heck of a lot. But... I mean, I've, I've listened to him in person. I've met him and so forth. I, w- I would say he's kind of the opposite of the flash that President, uh, now President Obama brought to the campaign scene in 2008. I don't think it's a matter of person. Obviously, who becomes president is important. Yeah. And one is ultimately uh, drawn to one or another presidential candidate. But I really have the feeling that by putting the stress on presidential choice, we are somehow putting aside and ignoring uh, something terribly wrong with the structure of and the function of the parties. It may well be that they are bought parties, that virtually all candidates are essentially beholden to those who will give them money or from whom they can squeeze money. That's certainly true year by year for most members of the House. And uh, it's true also uh, on a six-year basis in the Senate. There's something terribly wrong with our legislative process. And it was not always the case. As they say where I came from, can I get an amen? That's what I was saying at the very beginning when I was talking about a widespread distrust of the institutions and a feeling that there is a Wall Street, Washington, Wall Street slash Washington element of both parties. It's the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. It is indeed. I heard something really interesting. You have a friend, uh, and I do too, Arthur Sear. Yes, indeed. I know Art. And Art told me something really interesting once. He used to be the 
number two person at what was uh, what is now the Chicago Council on Global Affairs mm-hmm. had a slightly different name back in his Council uh, on Foreign Relations, right? And he he talked about all the presidential candidates coming through back in in the day, and of course he met them all. They gave them a chance to speak to Chicago's leaders and so forth. And he talked about Reagan, and he said when they would come through, he would give them, he would say, would you like me to put together a kind of special meeting in addition to your public talk with the people who run the big businesses and heads of the law firms and the kind of, and, you know, the media people, you would be there or something like that. But, I mean, it would be senior people. And all of them said yes, except Reagan. And he said um, Governor Reagan, would you mind if I ask you? Because they've all said yes. Why did you? Why did you say no? And he said, "If I get the Republican nomination, those people will come to me. But I don't want to be or be seen as the candidate of those people." Now, and what a brilliant political insight. Of course, he had the great advantage of not only having great insights like that, but of being underestimated by all his opponents, which is a great advantage. But um, I don't know that he could say that today because you have to raise so much money to run for office that unless you're Tom Steyer or David Koch, you can't fund it yourself. You have to meet with those people. And those people that Reagan didn't meet with, they would have already met with Romney. They would have already met with Jeb Bush. And if Reagan didn't get their money, he could not compete with them on the air in the Chicago media market. The other corrupting factor is the media uh, and the fact that uh, American politics, particularly at the presidential level or the gubernatorial level, has become essentially a variant of showbiz. Uh, the mounting of candidacies is so, it isn't merely imp- uh, intuitively showbizy and showoffy. It is also very much controlled, commanded, and shaped by uh, research which goes beyond mere polling, which now right. uh, has everything to do with that world I barely understand. That is the internet and all the social media things which provide data by which you can virtually catalog everybody and predict everything they're going to do, or shape your candidacy to suit every sector of an increasingly uh, uh, maldefined or misdefined or, uh, or too rigidly and too particularly defined American population. I think back to the time years ago when my former colleague at Yale, uh, Bob Abelson worked with Ithiel DeSola Pool to develop what they called simulmatics at the time. It was the first attempt to uh, estimate the American public on a computer model and break it into 52 or 64 or whatever it was, it was yeah. categories and make a prediction as to what would sell, what line would sell for which people as defined religiously, economically, ethnically, regionally, etc. That's what politics has now become. It's cynically done. It's done also with a lot of fakery on the part of those who've got these skills to sell, namely those who run the elections, the professional election class. But all in all, it's become something which has less and less to do with things that really matter. Or so I feel in my simple, naive 
disillusion with the way in which we live and the way in which we elect and the way in which we govern now. You and your simple naivete, I think this is the longest you've ever gone without a German or a French quote and mm-hmm. so forth. You sound like those country law. They say, I'm just a simple country lawyer, but That's as right. I understand, trust in the states. Uh, look, remember what Cicero uh, uh, was saying about, uh, or maybe it was his brother-in-law was saying to Cicero, flatter the uh, flatter the ordinary people. This would be shameful in ordinary life, but in politics you have to do it. I, I think that, that cynicism and fakery sort of go with the business. I think what's different now is that it's extremely expensive to run these campaigns, and that means that you have to appeal to donors. One of the things that the Obama administration— That gives all the power to Wall Street, essentially. It gives a lot. And one of the things that—and there's no easy way around it because the Supreme Court—and I don't know—I'm not saying that they found wrongly in this case, but they say that giving money to candidates is a form of free speech, and that if you limit the amount, you're limiting free speech. So that means uh, large donors can give a lot of money. There are a few restrictions on it, but not very many. And— and it's extremely expensive to buy media. The second thing is much more sophisticated use of electronics. So what the way I would basically see it, and of course we're sitting only a few hundred yards from where all of this was kind of invented, right, in the last campaign for Obama. They want to do two things, basically. They want, with very, very micro uh, data to figure out who's persuadable. You, Milt, are going to vote Republican. Charles, you're going to vote Democrat or whatever it is. They don't need to reach us. They need to reach uh, Joe Blow and Joan Blow who are still persuadable. And they need to focus entirely on them. Then they need to do a second thing. They need if you, Milt, are going to vote Republican, they need to make sure that you get out to the polls or get an absentee ballot and actually vote. And again, they can target that much, much better than they used to be able uh, to do. And the Democrats had a big advantage over the Republicans in the last, and we it remains to be seen. The Republicans have spent a lot of time trying to catch up. But the, the fact is, these are extremely expensive. I, I think that the idea of targeting... Uh, the persuadables is makes a lot of sense. There is a strange element of our of our presidential campaigns, though. We're here in Illinois. Nobody's campaigning for our vote. Nobody, right? I mean, this state will vote blue. Uh, I mean, if the polls show that it's reasonably close, then money will come in as it might say to Michigan if it looks closer. But you can't spend money everywhere. You have to figure out. And so you end up with about 10 states that are a kind of proxy, and almost like uh, sampling polling, right? And you end up with a national debt, which really scares the hell out of you if you think about, Sure. use the usual cliche line, think about what your children and grandchildren are going to face. Uh, this state has just inaugurated a new governor, who's really scaring people with that prospect, just as regards state debt. He's right to do it. He's quite right to do it. But will he deliver? Uh, Who knows? Well, 
I think he he wants to deliver. Let me let me say something to people who are outside of Illinois uh, to talk just a little bit about the state before we go to the national. The, during the heyday of the unions riding high, they put in an element in our state constitution that pensions cannot be diminished or reduced in any way in the future. Now. Since the pension burden is the key element, uh, we have enough police. It's just that most of them are retired. We have enough school teachers. It's just that most of them are retired. So uh, you have to solve this. And uh, the question is, can you do it consistent with the Illinois Constitution? If you go to the national level, we're going to have to rethink the way that things are are spent. Um, just to take a small but symbolic uh, element, we have a lot of subsidies that go to things like ethanol and uh, public television and all sorts of things. And we really need to ask how high a priority are those and should they be provided only through the government? I, for one, not only want to cut back the government, but I want to see it increased in certain areas. And I'll tell you which ones. At the state level, who are the people we absolutely need to take care of? The mentally ill, the, the mentally challenged kids with Down syndrome and that sort of thing. But they have the least political clout. They're the ones who get cut. And I just find, I find this disheartening in 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 a great way. And in our city, during the boom years, when these new high-rises were going up and there would be, you know, a floor after floor of new real estate taxes coming in from people who had no children to go to the schools, who were not going to require a single new policeman, Mayor Daley was spending more money than we were taking in. We're taking in this year at the national level in the first quarter in the last quarter, excuse me, of uh, 2014, more money than the federal government has ever taken in. I feel that we've done, in a way, uh, a disservice in that everything we've discussed leads you in a pessimistic direction. Leads me that way, but not you necessarily. You said you don't want to be disheartening, but what you've just said is disheartening. We've got three minutes left for you to be heartening about the American political future. Always look on the bright side of do life. So. I've got two minutes, two minutes and 40 seconds to do that. Well, it seems to me that it takes a lot to keep the American economy down. You could see that there were almost no uh, uh, good economic policies that help resurrect the American economy over the last six years. You could argue that there were some good and some bad, but the American economy has slowly come back. Uh, the American ingenuity that led to fracking and lower gas prices, that is exactly like a tax cut, and that has been extremely helpful. Uh, it is hard to... Uh, um, it was... Um, I think it was uh, Adam Smith who said there is a lot of ruin in a nation, meaning it takes a lot to destroy a great nation like the United States. And I think that we have great reservoirs. I am also optimistic, actually, about our immigrant population, especially about the Mexican-American immigrants. You're falling back on people yeah. rather than politicians. Right. And I think that if we got back to 
uh, some reasonable regulations, to helping our poor. I mean, in other words, and to getting away from lies. That's why I was so upset about Obamacare. We There was an agreement, a national agreement. Let's help the poorest who lack insurance, and let's help people who've been excluded from it. And the promise was we could do that without hurting the rest of us. That turned out to be not only false, but known to be false when it was said. I think that once we get an agreement by our politicians to tell us a little more of the truth and be held to account, to restrict Washington a little more, to restrict regulations, to move back toward what Tocqueville said was the essence of democracy, which is more state and local control, especially local control, there's a lot of strength in this country, and I think we can, we're still uh, a shining city on a hill, or so at least we, we can be. We end on a Chicago note from Chicago, a great poet of Chicago's Carl Sandburg, the people. Yes, the people. Exactly right. Milton, it is always such a pleasure to be on the air uh, with you. Uh, I remember our first show, which we did together with Thomas Aquinas. Uh, we've, been, uh, we've been doing them for a long time together, <laughs> and I really enjoy them. I really do. I always love having you here, and I thank you most sincerely. You are, in case you have forgotten, Charles Lipson political scientist, University of Chicago. And we thank all for listening. Back again next week.